Welcome to Douglas Wilson's The Plodcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. And speaking of audio at Canon Press, I'd like to announce the Isolation Audio Sale. 40% off all digital audio. That means audiobooks, talks, sermons, and conferences. We can't lift lockdowns and isolation orders, but we can help take the edge off. From now, today, Monday, until May 1st, get a whopping 40% off all digital audio products you've been wanting to listen to for a while. That means all audiobooks from fiction to family, all of our past conferences, sermons, and talks. Head to canonpress.com for more. During the times of coronavirus, it's it's actually hard to talk about anything else. But I do want to talk about something else, although the coronavirus will come into it. And I'm doing this for the podcast, episode 139. I forgot to introduce it. Welcome to the podcast, episode 139. I want to talk about poor Joe Biden. Um, this is an unlucky season for that, Jen. Um, a bunch of things have conspired against him. And I, I suspect, and that's the point of what I want to talk about today, I, can, I suspect that a number of other things are in the process of conspiring uh, against him. Uh, he, he basically, as I'm um, recording this, he's basically wrapped up the Democratic nomination. Bernie Sanders, his last um, challenger, has bowed out uh, and endorsed him. Others, uh, others have endorsed him. So there Biden is basically uh, with everything, uh, with it all over, but the shouting. The Democratic uh, National Committee has not yet met, but when they meet, Joe Biden will be the nominee. All right, so there, there we are. In the middle of this process, the whole COVID-19 thing hit in a spectacular way and just took all the oxygen out of the room uh, with regard to Joe Biden's existence or his presence. Occasionally, you'll see something about him pop up into the news, make it even into the news at all. But when that happens, it's generally um, a gaffe that he has committed or some sort of rambling montage of things he's put together. So it honestly looks like to the average observer that he's dealing with some sort of um, age-related memory issues, age-related... He really appears to be losing his grip. Uh, he's not tracking. He's not tracking well. And in the middle of this, um, and I'm leaving aside whether this was necessary. In the middle of this, uh, Donald Trump has been uh, showing up at daily news conferences. And if you want to know who took all the oxygen out of the room that Joe Biden was trying to live in, it was Donald Trump taking up all the oxygen. And what was left over was taken up by the alarm over the pandemic itself. But I think Donald Trump concluded that if they're going to run you out of town, uh, what you want to do is get out front and make it look like a parade. And so uh, in the early stages of the virus, Trump was riding the brake. He's more concerned about the economy than the virus. But when it became apparent that there was going to be a pandemic, uh, everybody was insisting on it being a pandemic. There was going to be one. 
He took his foot off the brake and hit the accelerator and got out in front in order to manage it. Um, so the spurious, uh, the spurious numbers that came out of the early modeling um, from Imperial College that upwards of 2.2 million Americans might die from the virus, which is a bogus number, uh, 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 an inflamed number, a, a, a hallucinogenic number. Um, Trump has grabbed hold of that number and is taking credit for having saved that, no that, that number of Americans. Yeah, no American president has saved as many lives as, as he did by stepping in the way he did. So the, the mistake that was being made by the people who wanted to, well, I'll back up. The, the central big thing that Donald Trump had in his favor going into the election, uh, you know, his uh, brusque manner, his uh, rude behavior and all, the thing he had going for him was the economy. The economy was a, a success story. And so what happened here in the, with the coronavirus is that one great talking point for Donald Trump was taken away. The, the, so that blew up. So uh, Donald Trump shifted seamlessly from presiding over the greatest economy in the history of the world. He, he glided safely over into, and it looks like it, he, did, he managed it, into saving the greatest economy in the history of the world. And we're going to bounce back and, and you're all with me and let's, let's make America great, great, great again. Okay. So that's what, that's what he's doing. In the meantime, uh, Joe Biden is losing his grip. And there's a rally around the flag um, tendency in these things. So Gavin Newsom, who's doing appalling things in California, and Governor Cuomo, who's been doing appalling things in New York State, their favorability ratings are up through the roof, as is Donald Trump's. So there's, uh, in times of crisis, there's a tendency that people have to rally around the existing leader. And uh, whether it's Cuomo or Newsom or Trump, that's what people are doing. And then when we pop out the other end of this, when the lockdowns start to end, which will be in May and June, okay, the lockdowns, uh, the lockdowns are going to start to end in May and June, which means that we're going to emerge from this uh, hibernation. We're going to emerge from this situation. And when we emerge, we're going to be plumb spang in the middle of the campaign. We're going to be in the presidential campaign. So we're the summer and the fall, and that's, that's it. So. Donald Trump is going to be taking victory laps for having saved the country from the COVID virus. And we will have a COVID champion in Donald Trump. That's the, the, basically, that's how he's going to present himself. And over on the Biden side, you have a, a, a fellow who was sidelined during the whole crisis who would emerge periodically to say something inarticulate. And he is going to be just sort of a nullity. He's, he, everybody's going to want to pat him on the head. The Democrats are going to need, they're going to need a COVID champion of their own. And I think uh, the obvious person to look at would be Cuomo. The problem is that Joe Biden has promised uh, to appoint a woman to be his vice presidential uh, candidate. Okay, but we don't have any women who are COVID champions. So basically, you can't have the champion of the world being Donald Trump saved us all from the COVID virus and Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren, who did nothing during that time. So enter this uh, recent accusation against Joe Biden of uh, sexual assault, right? So um, 
If you look at how the press coverage of the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh when he was nominated for the Supreme Court, allegations were made against him by someone who we didn't have any proof that the two of them had ever been in the same room together. Uh, but those allegations were front and center and were pumped and inflated. And, you know, Joe Biden's uh, basically is a, has been accused of this many years after the fact by a former staffer who was around him all the time, right? And then CNN's not mentioned the allegations against Biden once. Now, some people are going to say, well, this is just rank hypocrisy. Although all the people involved are capable of rank hypocrisy on things like this, I don't think that's what this is. I think that the Democrats know that in a debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, it would be like putting up a stick of cotton candy against a flamethrower. Joe Biden is not going to be able to handle Donald Trump on stage one-on-one. -on -one. It's just not going to happen. And I think the Democrats know that they locked up the mainline Democratic Party, locked in their position with the nomination of Biden. And now their problem is how to get rid of Biden. So I think the sexual assault allegation against him is a bomb with a long fuse. And what's going to happen is they're going to let the fuse run until the convention and what's going to happen is he's going to pick a woman vice presidential candidate, Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris or, you know, someone like that. Not the governor of Michigan who made herself obnoxious to all, but he's going to pick a woman. And then the bomb's going to go off. And then all of a sudden the media is going to take the allegations against him very, very, very seriously indeed. And he's going to be forced out of the race. And when he's forced out of the race, the party honchos are going to have come up with some scheme for replacing him. And, um, and, and it's a matter of, um, I don't know how they're going to do it, but uh, I would, I'm, I'm not predicting, I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, but I think something very much like this is going to happen. I think Joe Biden's days on the ticket are numbered, and I think there's going to be some shenanigans that put Cuomo or someone like Cuomo in on the ticket either in the number one slot with whoever the Veep is staying there or the vice presidential candidate being promoted to the presidential and then Cuomo being, or someone like Cuomo, being put in the vice presidential slot. Basically, what I'm telling you is to, as we used to say in the Navy, stand by for heavy rolls, stand by for some backroom deals, stand by for some upheaval. I think we're going to have some real upheaval. As we continue with Plodcast, episode 139, we come to the word atakteo. Atakteo. It means to behave in a disorderly way. Our closely related word, ataktos, also means disorderly, but is used a couple of times here in the, in the KJV in an adverbial way. First, the verb. For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us, for we behave not ourselves disorderly among you. 2 Thessalonians 3.7 Paul says that what he is prohibiting among the Thessalonians is something which he and his entourage also avoided when they were in Thessalonica. The apostolic band behaved in a way that modeled for the Thessalonians how they ought to live. The other uses give a bit more context concerning what particular kind of sin we are talking about. In the first instance, in verse 6, Paul says that it is pretty serious. If a brother is behaving in this way, we should avoid him or shun him. This is not formal excommunication. It's not formal excommunication because later on, we're told to admonish this guy as a brother, verse 15, 
and not to count him as an enemy, admonish him as a brother. So this would be the basis uh, that churches have for suspending someone from the supper for a time and have that still falling short of excommunication. That's something we do in our, in our church polity. It's not just membership in good standing or excommunication. If someone's walking in a disorderly way, and it's not enough to make you uh, reject him as a brother, Jesus says at the end of the Matthew 18 process that you're to treat the person that you've excommunicated as an unbeliever, as an outsider, as a tax collector. Um, but this guy in Thessalonians, his life is in disarray, his small business is in disarray, he's lazy, he's got all kinds of problems, and so you warn him, you shun him, you don't, de- you don't hang out with him. That's one thing. You don't hang out with him, but even though you don't hang out with him, you don't regard him as an enemy. That's, that's, an in, be- that's in between a member in good standing and excommunicated or put out of the church. So, now we command you, brethren, in Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 6, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, there we are again, and not after the tradition which he received of us. The next use is in verse 11, and this gives us a glimpse into the nature of the sin. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. 2 Thessalonians 3.11 So the sin is apparently one of being simultaneously busy and lazy. They're simultaneously busy and lazy. This person works not at all, it says, but is rather a busybody. The word in the Greek there indicates someone who walks energetically all around the edges of the work, right? So you've got, uh, you've got some guys down in the hole with shovels, and then you've got someone who's bustling about the lip of the hole. Uh, the guy who's bustling about the lip of the hole asking questions and, and sort of presiding, he's not really in charge of anything, but he acts like he's in charge of things. That's the kind of character that is consistent with the disorderliness that Paul is talking about. All right, episode 139 in the podcast. The book that I'm reviewing uh, this time was a really, well, mixed bag. It was really revealing in lots of ways. I, the central thesis I embrace, I think there's really something to it. And the guy, um, the guy who wrote it, his name is Woodard. The, uh, the guy who wrote it is sympathetic or somewhat on the left, and that colors some of his analysis. Uh, and you have to be careful. Um, but here it is. The name of the book is American Nations. American Nations. And what he's arguing for here is that you have to look at the North American continent in terms of ethnic and regional groupings, and you can predict how those uh, enclaves or how those different regions are going to vote, how they're going to go to war, how they're going to resist going to war, how they're going to play with, uh, play with others. Um, and so he basically outlines uh, North America as being made up of 11 nations, okay, 11 nations, and here they are. I'm going to go left to right. Uh, the left coast, okay, the left coast, the far west, that's where I live, okay, the far west, El Norte, which is northern Mexico, and the southwest. El Norte is northern Mexico, which he argues is very, very different than uh, southern Mexico. Then the Midlands, the Midlands, then there's Greater Appalachia, 
Then there's the Deep South. Then there's New France. And New France would be, it basically has two enclaves. One would be New Orleans, and the other would be um, Quebec. And the French originally settled New Orleans, and it was uh, the French who uh, sold Jefferson the, Louisiana, the whole Louisiana Purchase. So New France is New Orleans and up in Quebec. Then there's the Tidewater. Um, Tidewater would be Maryland, Virginia, and um, North Carolina. So that's Tidewater uh, region. Then there's New Netherland. New Netherland would be New York area. Remember that New York was, at, at once on a time, was New Amsterdam. Uh, settled by the Dutch, the English captured it back and forth. But it, uh, one of the things that Woodard argues is that a lot of these regions have preserved almost in uh, almost uh, at a museum-like quality, have preserved the founding culture or the, the DNA of the founders of these um, regions are preserved in recognizable forms down to the present day. The 10th is Yankeedom, Yankeedom, which would be New England, and then First Nation. Okay, First Nation. And he has that grouped up in northern Canada and Alaska, uh, mostly because that is a, there are obviously reservations and, and First Nations elsewhere, but that's one place where they're, they are um, isolated, small, tiny enclaves. So the left coast, the far west, El Norte, the Midlands, Greater Appalachia, the Deep South, uh, New France, which would be Quebec and New Orleans, uh, Tidewater, uh, New Netherland, Yankeedom, and First Nation. So what he does in this book is he walks through a history of uh, the United States. He explains a lot by pointing to who, who settled where, who did what. Now, um, there are his sympathies. Uh, you, you know, one of the things that you should ask is, what nation is he from? Well, you know, wh what perspective is he giving? I think he's generally a fair-minded writer. He's guilty of a few mistakes here and there. There's one or two howlers that I, I noted. Uh, and other times, it's not howlers as in a mistake. A howler, for, for example, he was, he was talking at one place about why Maryland didn't secede from the Union during the Civil War. And, you know, he, and, the, and the reason Maryland didn't secede is Lincoln arrested the, the Maryland legislature. <laughs> That's the reason they didn't secede, um, which he just passes by. He, he, um, so he misses that. So there are some historical mistakes. The other areas where his, um, his worldview comes out, it would be not so much a howler or a mistake as it would be just a difference of, a, just a difference of opinion. We'd, we'd want to sit down and have a discussion about it. As I went through this book, it was one of those things where I found I found myself um, seeing a lot getting explained, a lot of things, a lot of pieces clicked into place as I was considering American history. I grew up in the Tidewater area. I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, and so I'm very familiar with the the Tidewater area. I can recognize the Tidewater accent, um, and I've spent most of my life in the Far West. So I'm a I'm a mixture. Uh, I'm an acclimated native to the Far West, but I grew up in Tidewater. And and he points out basically, although both Tidewater and uh, the Deep South were part of the uh, the war between the states, there was a very big cultural difference between 
between the two. The Tidewater was settled by Englishmen, basically, and Deep South was settled by uh, plantation owners basically coming from the West Indies. So it was, uh, they reproduced a system that had taken root in the islands, and the, um, the Tidewater gentlemen were of a, of a very different stripe. And the greater Appalachia would be um, basically <laughs> Jacksonian rednecks. So you could talk about Jacksonian rednecks throughout greater Appalachia. Um, and, and when he talks about, oh, oh the other thing was, uh, oh, 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 right. Many times people probably wonder, is it ocean water that makes people liberal? So you look at a map, an electoral map, and in the middle of the United States is red. And the right coast, the east coast is blue, and the left coast is blue. Why, is it water that does that? Well, basically, one of the things he does really well is he shows you who settled where. Um, so uh, the, the missionary, basically, the people who settled on the left coast, early missionaries and um, uh, settlers, were Yankees. They were from, they, they were from Yankeedom. So the reason, the reason there's, there are so many cultural affinities from different parts of the country has to do with uh, where people came from, right? Who, which group settled where? It, it is a very informative book. So discount, discount for the, uh, the occasional mistake and discount for the fact that he's left-leaning. There's still a lot of information there for you.